Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Pretend that uh, you're home and you hear a knock at the door. And when you open the door, you're greeted by a gentleman trying to sell you some hair restoration products. And Lord knows that some of you guys need that. Um, This man in his fine suit shows up and he touts, this, uh, this hair restoration product is the best product in the world for this, and it's able to restore any hairline to its former glory. He has dozens of successful pictures with various clients and stories to tell, and, and uh, you know, after five or ten minutes, you start to think, all right, I'm convinced. I think I'm going to buy some of this stuff. I could really use it. Scratching your head a little bit, you know. You need it. But just as you start to think that this stuff's real, and just before you go to hand him a check, he takes off his hat to shoo a fly away. And you notice this guy's bald on top. <laughs> Still going to buy that product? Are you? I guess you'd have a few questions for him, wouldn't you? But you know, that's kind of what it's like when Christians try to introduce people to Jesus Christ, but their own life shows no signs of transformation. When we're, we're not in reality what we profess. Then, you know, there was a, an atheistic postmodern philosopher. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who said this, he said, show me that you're redeemed, and I'll listen to you talk about your Redeemer. Show me you're redeemed, and I'll listen to you talk about your Redeemer. Um, Hey, I I think I forgot my clicker somewhere, (laughs) my slide advancer. But really, uh, we're here because of... uh, one word in Titus, and every Christmas since I've preached through Titus just a few years ago, I find myself drawn back to this one little word in the New Testament letter of Titus, and it's the word adorn. And I was drawn back to this because uh, just like we, thanks buddy, just like we uh, decorate or adorn our houses and Christmas trees with lights and ornaments. So the Bible says that we are to adorn the truth of God's Word and the Gospel by the way that we live our lives. We adorn truth. We beautify it, basically. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, each Christian is an ornament of Christianity. We're each an ornament. 
so that even a skeptical man like Friedrich Nietzsche, who don't believe eternal truth exists, might just be more willing to listen to truth. So that's where we're going with the message this morning. Titus chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. As for you, Paul speaking to Titus, pastor of the churches at Crete, he says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, to show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves. Uh, we might look at that as employees in our culture. Uh, in, urge employees to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For, here's your Christmas verse, guys. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's your, there's your verse about Jesus being God. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, so uh, Titus, uh, this is an, uh, an epistle or a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a fellow uh, traveling missionary companion, a young man named Titus, whom, uh, kind of like Timothy, Timothy was a traveling companion. He left to pastor the church at Ephesus. Titus, uh, he left at one point in his missionary travels to, to pastor, uh, to set and order the churches on the island of Crete, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, the largest island there. Uh, Titus's task was to see that these churches become established, orderly, healthy, God-glorifying, lost-reaching churches. And we could call them just sound churches. You hear a lot about solid churches today, solid believers. Let's talk about sound churches and sound believers. This, this, this mission is actually explicitly stated in chapter 1, verse 5, if you want to look it up. It says this. This is for both Titus's sake and for the sake of the churches that he's going to be ministering to. Uh, 
For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So there are churches gathering in the cities on the island of Crete, uh, and, and most likely these churches sprung up uh, just kind of you know, as a result of the Cretans who were at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, there's people from all over the world there, Jews and and uh, converts from all over the world in Jerusalem, they hear the gospel, they, they go there for the feast of Pentecost, and then they come home, and now they're believers, and they start to gather together. But they're kind of um, walled off, right, by the ocean from the mainland, and they don't have all the apostolic instruction coming their way, they don't have leaders, there's no leadership, and so this is Titus's job to um, set these churches in order to see that they become the churches that God calls them to be, with apostolic instruction and direction and, and good leadership, and I, I don't usually pick on individual words as much as I, I do to, I'm going to do today, but there's just a handful of words here in Titus that very graphically sharpen our understanding and and of the instruction that Paul is giving Titus and giving these churches. Now, you really see his heart in these words that uh, we're going to focus on today. Um, some of our, I'm not going to go in depth uh, in the passage like I normally do. Uh, I'm just going to kind of pick on some words here and just kind of exposit it in that sense. But uh, we have some of the other sermons from Titus online if you want to look them up. But uh, the first word I want to pick on is, is actually three words in our English Bibles. Set in order. Set in order. Three words in our English Bibles in, in the original, the Greek, it's epidiorthos. Epidiorthos. Did you hear anything in there? So listen, just like an orthopedic surgeon will correct and straighten a broken bone, right? Or an orthodontist will set straight your teeth, he'll align your teeth, or maybe like an orthographer uh, will it kind of focuses on correct spelling and use of words. Um, so Titus's job is to straighten out or correct these churches. He's going to straighten them out and correct them. Uh, to do that, Paul focuses on two things in this letter. Number one, sound doctrine. Number two, sound living. And the one builds on the other. Sound living is going to be built on Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine should produce sound living. And sound is another word uh, that I want to highlight. Uh, it means healthy. Healthy. I mean, even just looking at the Greek word in your notes there, uh, you can see the correlation between the word sound and our word for hygiene. You see the word hygiene in it. When, when someone is lost, and they, we, they're eventually found, what do we say? Oh, we found them safe and sound. They're sound, meaning they're healthy. They're in a good state. They're in a, a good condition. Well, sound doctrine, we might as well say, is healthy doctrine. It's good. It brings good condition of people, too. It brings Spiritual health. When we study doctrine, we study theology, and we're going to do a lot next year. Um, we tend to get big heads, right, about you know, who's right about this and who's right about that. But we have to remember that doctrine isn't meant to make us cold. It isn't meant to make us butt heads. Doctrine is not 
an end in itself, as much as I want it to be sometimes. And I want to argue about who's right. But when we study doctrine, when we study theology, uh, we want to remember that we're looking to build healthy lives. We want healthy lives as a result of healthy doctrine. So we study doctrine, we study theology because we want to think right and we want to live right. We want to glorify God by thinking rightly of Him and then also the right application to our lives. So it should bring spiritual health, healthy hearts and minds and lives and relationships, uh, our relationship with God. Man, we want those to be healthy. That's all the result of healthy doctrine. And uh, I think we could say that churches would reach more people if they focused more on being a, a healthy church, a quality church, than, you know, they're trying to be a large church. We focus on quality over quantity. And then if you do that, if you focus on being a healthy church and having a healthy church body, then you shouldn't be surprised if the church just naturally grows as God adds to it, as God brings the growth. When something's healthy, right, you've taken care of gardens and plants and things and animals, right? You've done husbandry of some kind. It, it, you, you, you t- if, how is a sick plant going to grow? It's not. It, you, you cultivate your garden. You want it to be a healthy garden. You take care of the pests and the diseases so that it grows and it's, it's productive. Well, it's just like a church body. It's really hard when we're not in a good condition to invite others in. So we have to concentrate on a church body and our own health sometimes. And, and then that's how it starts to grow. You bring others into a healthy church body. The body sometimes needs uh, restoration to health first. That was the situation at Crete. These churches were not healthy. They were struggling with false teaching. False teaching that is destructive. It's not healthy. Uh, he, Paul, in this uh, epistle... Chapters 1, he starts out with it, he ends with it. He talks about these, these false teachers, these empty talkers, he calls them. Empty talkers and deceivers who want to promote just foolish controversies about genealogies and different things. And, you know, uh, and different uh, things about the law that he says they're, they're factious. These are words that he uses to describe them. They're factious, they're uh, legalistic, they're upsetting whole families for the sake of personal gain so you tell their hearts really after the money and and paul he talked about instead of that you guys need titus's job was to find uh leadership and good leadership mature men in the faith appoint elders men of integrity integrity uh with paul's apostolic authority right he's supposed to find these guys and appoint them to be elders in the church these men who can hold fast the faithful word he says Hold fast the faithful word and be able to teach in sound doctrine. So every church has to start with good leadership, teaching good doctrine. But two uh, common examples of unhealthy doctrine, like one mentioned here, would be legalism. Uh, legalism, just the idea that we're saved by our works or somehow going to you know, merit you know, righteousness before God by our works or you know, we're going to become more acceptable to God because of our works. Um, license would be the opposite of that. That's kind of the opposite ex- extreme that he addresses uh, in verse 11 and 12. But he talks about uh, license would be, you know, just, well, God's, God died for me and I have his grace, so I can just live however I want now. Well, what does Paul say about that? He says, that's, well, Christ, 
the grace of God appeared instructing us to deny. God's grace instructs us, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age while we wait for Christ to come. So it's not legalism, it's not license, it's, it's, it's healthy grace doctrine, right? Um, if it's legalism and license, we've, we went through Galatians a few years ago, but you saw the result of that, right? The pride, the quarrels, people biting and devouring one another, seeing each other on ladders like, I'm doing better than you are, and this and that, you know, and it, just button heads. That's what false doctrine does to a church body. It destroys it from within. But grace, the grace of God in Christ produces healthy lives and relationships. And so that's why we have to stand firm on sound doctrine. Jesus came to restore us, you know, to restore uh, so much of who He made us to be. Sin has come into this world. It has wrecked our lives. It's wrecked our relationships. And we suffer from that, right? Before we're Christians, we're slaves to the sin nature. Jesus came so that we could be born again by the Spirit of God and, and be set free from not only sin's power and the guilt, but... Uh, it's not sin's penalty, you know, and the guilt that comes with that, but to give us uh, freedom from sin's power by the Holy Spirit so we can live for God. So He came to bring us life and to restore us. And, and you know, when you go through your Bibles and, and you, you see the word life or you see the words eternal life, it might be qualified by eternal, or the word eternal, life, zoe is the word. It, it's, no, it's not always talking about duration. You know what I mean? It's not always, the word eternal life isn't always talking about uh, eternity. The duration of life going on forever. It's not just talking about life in heaven. Sometimes, and you have to tell, you tell by the context, it's talking about a quality of life that begins now in this life when we're born again by grace through faith in Jesus. Right? It's, it's, remember Jesus said, you have no life in you. He was talking to, who was he talking to? Living people, right? And he says, you have no life in you. So sometimes life refers to the inner spiritual life that Jesus wants to restore in us. It's spiritual life that brings meaning and purpose and a restored relationship with God. It's a life that's different from the rest of fallen humanity who are slaves to sin and 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 temporality right the idea that this is this is all this is as good as it gets no we have hope we have life we have joy because of what jesus has done for us and and so in a sense uh jesus came to restore so much of what we were intended to be before sin and after right after his return so right now as we're living right now in the present age we're living in light of i should do this for you guys in light of what's to come. Sometimes I live in light of Genesis chapter 2. You know, I like to think of how God created this world to be before sin and how it's going to be after sin. And we want to try to bring that focus into our lives right now. That's what Jesus died for, to set us free from sin. And so we live in light of who He really created us to be. That process of eternal life starts now. Uh, we live now in light of what is to come.
And again, in Titus, you need to know that the reason for that is not just, it's not just about us. Even though that's a big aspect of it, right? I want you to come to Christ so you know what it's like to really live. I want you to have that abundant life in Christ. But at the same time, it's not just about us. Paul, Paul's point in the book of Titus is that um, no, it's also for God's glory, but also just for the sake of outsiders, practically speaking, for the sake of outsiders, people who don't believe, people who are unbelievers. Sound doctrine should produce sound living, which in, turns, which in turn makes the gospel attractive. People see that. They see there's something different about us, and they say, you know, I don't know what it is about them, but I'm kind of drawn to that, whatever they have. And sound doctrine and sound living, they're both needed to pass on the truth to the next generation. Do you, talk, you see how Paul was talking to old men and younger men and older women, younger women, employees? You know, he's talking about passing down the truth, guarding the truth and passing it on. And to do that, we need those two things, sound doctrine and sound living. Uh, you know, in our, in our Modeling Christ series, I think it was last summer, we, we talked so much about this, uh, how, uh, how we need to both teach it and we, both, and we need to model it with our lives. In fact, they say, like, uh, you know, passing on the truth to the next generation, to your kids, they say it's 10% formal teaching and 90% modeling it for them. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, does, it does express what the point that Paul is trying to make here, how important it is not only to teach our kids doctrine, but to live it out, to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. And that's the idea here. Uh, we're radically different for the sake of a watching world. I got a quote here. I don't even, I got this out of my old sermon in Titus, and I, I don't even know, I don't even know who said it, to be honest with you. I apparently didn't keep good enough notes. But Paul knew that the saving truth of the gospel uh, falls on deaf ears when those who are preaching it live ungodly lives that show no evidence of redemption. When Christians live in open sin, they can hardly expect unbelievers to heed a message that purports to save men from sin, right? It's a good summation of what Paul's communicating in the book of Titus. Remember, Crete, guys, Crete was a carnal place. A very carnal place, a sinful place. It was the vacation destination, you know? You know what happens there, right? There's a lot of people right now on spring, or not spring break, Christmas break down in Mexico, right? Uh, you know what happens in these vacation places. And Paul quoted one of their poets in chapter 1, uh, a guy by the name of Epimenides, and he said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> someone, someone said this, the only reason to go to Crete was to eat and drink and soak in the immorality. And this kind of sounds like Las Vegas, to be honest with you. But, guys, even their gods, even the gods that, that the Cretans had were immoral gods. And they looked at these immoral gods as virtuous, kind of like Zeus. Zeus, like, he disguised himself as another man's wife and then committed adultery. He was a deceitful adulterer. And they looked at him as like their, you know, virtuous god. Like, that's the kind of place we're talking about. Lying was virtuous. And there's still places in the world like that. You know, there's gods in India where lying is virtuous. Um, since there were no harmful 
or wild beasts on this island, right? No, there's nothing poisonous. Nothing's going to bite you on this island. It's all, all the animals are friendly there. Um, the, the joke was that it was the people, the Cretans, that were the beasts. There's no beasts on the island. The, the beasts are the people is what kind of the joke was. And so Cretan Christians are now to be radically different from what Cretans are known for. They're going to counteract the culture. Uh, I came across a, a deal last night that said this, while, while we're putting, I thought this kind of was very fitting for our message this morning, but while we're putting Christ back into Christmas, let's put him back into Christian too. How about that, right? Let's put Christ back into the Christian, into the term Christian. Some people hear the word Christian and it's just very nominal. Like just, You don't see any evidence of Christ in their lives. And so, I, I thought that went well with today's message. Christians, Christian, to be a Christian, you know what that means? It means little Christ, a Christ one. We're to be a little, a little Christ. And in, 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 in essence, I mean, the term Christian, it was at first it was a negative thing, right? Uh, a little Christ, you know. But we adopted that as like, yeah, I like that little Christ. I'm supposed to be a little Christ, and we're all supposed to be Christ-like, right? That's the the goal of sanctification. But uh, little productions of Christ, and actually, verse 6, our word example in there is perfect for that, because example means model, type, image. Actually, this word was used uh, to leave an impression with a die, you know, die casting. Uh, kind of like when you, when you miss the nail with your hammer and you leave an impression in the wood, right, a dent in the wood, <laughs> Uh, it's not going away. That's kind of the idea here. We are to leave an impression on people with our lives, uh, with our Christ-like behavior. It's interesting how as Christians, you know, sometimes we think, ah, we better not be too Christian. You know, I better, uh, better tame my Christian walk a little bit, water down the message a little bit. I've got to make it more palatable for the culture. Well, on the contrary, our Bible says we actually make it more attractive by sticking to the Bible. We make the gospel more attractive by sticking to the Bible rather than bending to the worldliness. So these woke churches out there trying to bend the knee to the different wokeisms out there, they're doing more harm than good. Right? You're going you're gonna to beautify, you're going to make it more attractive if you stand firm. You don't bend to that kind of junk. We're to live holy lives. Verse 5 says, so that the word of God won't be dishonored. Did you guys catch that? Verse 5. Our lives can either honor or dishonor. Blasphemeo is the word. It can blaspheme the truth. I, my life can either support the truth or it can supplant it. 1 Timothy 6.1 says when we live in sin, it, uh, it, gives, it gives people an opportunity to blaspheme God's name, to uh, revile God's name, to speak against our doctrine, Paul says, and to be skeptical of, of what we say. Of what we profess. Verse 10, he says, uh, We want to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. So, uh, the word adorn, again, my favorite word here this morning, is the Greek word cosmeo. Cosmeo. Sounds a lot like our word for cosmetics, huh? Cosmetics. We women use the cosmetics to adorn and beautify their faces sometimes. Sometimes men would like to. Buy those hair restoration products to make attractive their hairlines again, right? 
First Timothy 2.9, 1 Peter 3.5, they use this word. It says it's more important for women to adorn themselves with godly behavior than jewelry and fine dresses. He's not saying you can't do those things. You can't wear jewelry and fine dresses. He's just saying, look, this, the, what's more important is the internal character. It's the internal character, the godly behavior. Um, adorn means to beautify, decorate, arrange, to make neat, to make attractive. And actually, some of your Bibles translate it that way, that you'll make the doctrine of our God and Savior uh, attractive. You'll make it attractive. Uh, adorn is also used to describe the second temple. Uh, it would be the refurbished. It's the second temple, but it's the, it was kind of rebuilt by Herod. You might some consider it the third temple at that point. But... Um, this word was used to describe Herod's temple that was in operation during Jesus' day. In Luke 21.5, they're talking about, look at this ornate, beautiful temple. Remember that they're walking out of the temple complex, and the disciples are talking about how beautiful this Herod's temple is, how ornate it is. It's got these you know, golden pomegranates. It's made of gold and, and marble, and Jesus says it's all going to be torn down. Yeah, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. But, and it was in AD 70. But it was used to describe this, this eighth wonder of the world, they called it. Um, even more powerful than that is the use of the word adorn in Scripture to describe our future home in glory, the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John describes in detail, in great detail, uh, the new eternal Jerusalem that all believers are going to enjoy one day. If you want to know what heaven's going to be like, why don't you go read these chapters? Uh, the New Jerusalem is a, it's just a, John talks about it, and I wish we had time to read it, but it's just a brilliant, it's a brilliant place. It's just wonderful. I mean, the, it's the stuff that movies can't even portray. They only try to pre- depict this kind of stuff. And you're talking about walls of clear jasper stone. Clear jasper. We're talking about streets of gold that are so pure. There's no impurities in them. And they're so pure that you can see through them. I mean, we're talking about pearly gates and, and just, you know, the foundation stones. Revelation 21, 19. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. You know, rubies and emeralds and jacinth and whatever. That's, it's going to be just gorgeous. Our heavenly home is adorned with precious stones. And then Revelation 21, 2, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? Doesn't a woman adorn herself on her wedding day more than any other day, pretty much? Uh, well, you know, my favorite part about a wedding actually is is, is the part where the bride walks down the aisle, but while she's walking down the aisle and everybody rises to like watch her come in, I'm actually, I probably look at the man more, to be honest, just because he's got, he's got so much emotion. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing. He's overwhelmed with emotion watching his bride come down the aisle, and so I'm kind of going back and forth between them. But uh, John, in Revelation, likens the saints to a husband who with wonder, I mean, I, I imagine there's going to be good tears there, there's not going to be sad tears, but good tears. Uh, with wonder, as we watch, the, this is something we're going to do. We're going to watch the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven to the new earth. 
to a restored earth. And it's going to be like a bride adorned for her husband. And we're the husband. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine the, the emotion? Like, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been living for. Like, eternity and Christ and the throne of God and the Lamb dwelling in it. And we don't need the sun anymore because God is its light. And we're going to walk in it. No more mystery with God anymore. You know, it's face to face. It's going to be amazing. The term adorn, interestingly enough, is also used for this. The trimming of a wick on a lamp. You know, back in like Matthew, when Jesus talks about the ten virgins, uh, you know, like trimming their lamps, keeping their lamps lit, keeping, you know, or, or the, the, the keeping things in order, that sort of thing. Uh, that's the same way this, this word is used. It's used like, you guys have probably used an oil lamp, I hope. At least the older folks probably, huh? Uh, oil lamps where you actually have to like, put the wick up and down and you have to trim it and that sort of thing. Like, I've, I've used those in power outages and uh, I kind of like them. But um, we've got, got all these LED lights today. We don't need any of that anymore, right? But... Uh, you know, those, those oil lamps that you use camping or, or when the power goes out, they're really similar to one of these, these ancient lamps. They had a wick in them, and you'd, sometimes you had to pull it out. It would burn up, right? So you'd use the, lose the light, so you had to pull it out, trim it up, clean it up, so that it keeps burning bright. Well, as we live out the truth, we keep the light of Christ shining bright. We're like lights in this world. We're like, not just ornaments, we're like lights. What do you put on a tree? We don't have a Christmas tree in here. It's back there. But you put ornaments and lights on it. What a great picture of what we're called to be in this world. Uh, the last verse I want to pick on for our word adorn is in its relation to the use of our tongue. Proverbs 15, 1 through 2 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, the tongue of the wise adorns, makes acceptable knowledge but the mouth of fools spout folly. So some folks uh, have a lot of good things to say, and though they're speaking truth, it's the way that they say it. You know, it, it just turns people away. Paul said you have to speak sound words, he said in Titus. Sound words, uh, words that adorn the truth. Uh, speak the truth in love, or else you just become a noisy gong, and, and you're going to drive people away. So... Paul says, sound speech adorns the gospel. Just in, in application, uh, let's move into application now. Uh, at the beginning of the message, I, uh, I mentioned a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. He was, uh, again, a, a German postmodern philosopher whom we have to thank for our culture today and the state that it's in. Uh, just highly have to thank him. We, we can thank Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, um, all of these guys, same disciples, you know, they're like the 12 disciples, whatever, but <laughs> of their own belief system. And uh, they discipled our country. They just, they've discipled our world. They rule the world from the grave today. But um, this man, he died in, in the year 1900, and he's considered the father, the father of nihilism. And, and nihilism, nihilism, it's the idea that there's, there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing as eternal truth. 
eternal realities. He rejected the idea that, that, uh, that there's anything spiritual. You know, he believed in naturalism, that only, you know, evolution's true, and there's nothing spiritual uh, that exists. Uh, rejected all religious and moral principles. He's the one who actually coined the phrase, God is dead, and we have killed him. God is dead, we have killed him. He believed the way to freedom was to acknowledge there's no such thing as truth. And, uh, boy, these men were really good gurus of our public schools, by the way. Nietzsche, though, he understood that even though he believed that and he was teaching that, he understood the connection that it was going to make in people's lives. He understood the, the impact, the implications that it was going to have on society. Actually, he said this. He, he knew this. He said, we were going to sign our death certificate as a society if we embrace this. As a society, you get rid of God, you sign your death certificate as a society. And don't we see that today? The implications for people in an evolutionary construct or, or, or idea where you know it just leaves people without meaning now i'm an accident i was produced from this uh, blue green foam that was struck by lightning billions of years ago in some forgotten pale blue dot somewhere you know what i mean it's like i'm an accident at that point i mean i'm the pro i'm the i'm the result of Chance, nature plus chance. You know, and so you have no meaning. You have no purpose. There's no hope. Once you're dead, you're dead, right? Sorry, natural selection took its, it run its course. No hope. And society, as a result of embracing nihilism, nihilism, becomes anxiety-ridden and despairing. No hope, no meaning, no purpose. And in such a view, all you really have left at that point, other than dependence on the government instead of God, is you have your own mind and your personal desires. That's really all you're left with at the end of the day. My own mind my own perspective of what I think truth is and the personal desires that I'm going to pursue to get to that truth. And it's usually like, I, I'm, the truth is I need to be happy. You know? <laughs> Nothing is nailed down anymore in a society like that, not even genders, and they knew it was going to come to this. They knew it, and it's here 100 years later. But it was the plan from the beginning. When you live that out, and a lot of us have, you live out this idea, it's all about me and about making me happy. When all your desires and your longings, you chase them, and they aren't fulfilled, they aren't met, it leaves you empty, it leaves you unfulfilled, or you pursue your unsound doctrine, <laughs> and it actually brings destruction into your life. You realize that while I'm pursuing these things, it's actually self-destructive to my life. It's not satisfying me like I thought it would. You really have nowhere else to turn at that point, right? You've pursued your doctrine, and it's left you empty and unhealthy. And you have nowhere else to turn. 
So the freedom from God that Nietzsche was after, it just basically it brings slavery to sin and self. And we're living in a Nietzschean culture. Guys, it's full of broken and hurting people with no stability and no direction for their lives. And I tend to think that there's a lot of people waking up to this, what I'm talking about here this morning. There's a lot of people waking up to the reality of this isn't working. Evolution itself, the, the theory is, it's waning. I, there's still some folks out there that are pushing the narrative, right? But even evolution is crumbling as science advances and proves how complex creation is. And the fossil record isn't lining up with what Darwin said. And, you know, the geological evidence is just, it's not there. There's new finds all the time throwing wrenches in their theories. And so even science supports a creator God. And so we're kind of living at a critical time, I think. A critical moment. The truth is there, it exists, and we need to beautify it with our lives. In a culture like this, that's kind of run its course on postmodernism and humanism, you could tell people are searching for the next thing. I wonder if they're going to search for one global ruler to solve all their problems. You guys know what I'm talking about. But I think in a culture like this, what it needs more than anything is for Christians to speak truth and to adorn the truth with their lives, lives that support what they profess, people whose lives make sense and whose lives show that there is some security. You know, there, there is stability, there's wholesomeness, there's... You know, when we're talking about our life with outsiders, we're talking about our life goals, our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our money, our finances, our, our jobs, we're communicating biblical meaning and purpose and direction. I mean, you should have meaning and direction for every aspect of your lives, right? We want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So even if I'm talking about money, it's not just, it's just, it's not just money for me, it's about it's about glorifying God with money. And I actually have, you know, biblical principles. I'm going to glorify God with that. You know, I just like, that's just one aspect of your life where you can glorify God and um, you can show a lost culture. There is a map, you know. <laughs> you show a lost culture. There is a map. Show a sinking culture. There is a solid rock to stand on. There's a rock that brings meaning to even the most mundane, ordinary moments of life and hope to the darkest moments in life. You know, that's kind of what Christmas, I think, is, is here for. You know, this is the darkest time of year, right? The shortest day of the year was the 21st, I think. It's the darkest time of year, and how awesome that we get to celebrate Christmas, the light coming into the world at this time. I mean... That's what it's here for, to cheer us up in this dark time. And as Christians, we, we're, we need to think of ourselves as ornaments and lights on God's Christmas tree. And you know, aren't we drawn to that? Here's one good example of how people are drawn to a magnificently, or, or a magnificently decorated tree. That's the Rockefeller Center tree down in New York City, right? Just People come from all over the world 
to look at this magnificent tree that's lit up and decorated. I kind of like to think we need to be a lot more like that tree. Not so that people come to look at us, but to look at Christ, who is the real light of the world, right? So, just this real briefly. A small business owner had a conversation with God. The business owner said, God, should I, should I add a little fish symbol to the corner of my landscaping company's logo? And God said, what for? He said, so the people will know they're dealing with a Christian company. You know, so that they'll know I'm a Christian. Put a little fish symbol on my car or whatever. God replied, let's just leave it off. And let's see if they can figure that out by the way that you do business with them.